Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And don't forget to keep sending us those questions that you have as either you're listening along or you're reading along or maybe just another random Bible question that comes up in a discussion or just in the middle of the night, just something pops in your head. We would love to take time as much as we can week over week. Uh, at the end of our podcast episodes to answer a question from one of our raving fans. Uh, and so you can send those questions in two ways. One is an email. The email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Feel free to DM us there as well. There you be. All right. Well, this week we are kicking off a new a new period of history dun, dun, dun. To, to be talking about the Israelites. So we're going to talk about the books of Ezra uh, and a good chunk of Nehemiah today as Hello. well. Yeah, it's going to be great stuff. And we did start reading Ezra last week, as we mentioned in last week's episode, but right. we decided to wait until today. It's true. So you're welcome. Uh, so Ezra is almost certainly the author of the work because many of his sections are in first person. So that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty telltale sign that that's who it is. Uh, I was going to say that the book of Ezra ushers in the next major chapter in Israel's history. So I kind of I, I, I did a thought experiment of how would you break down kind of the eras of Israel's history in ancient. I think there's ten that you can go through. So you have the era of the patriarchs, which is you know Genesis and uh, Abraham through Joseph. You have the years in Egyptian slavery. You have the wandering in the wilderness. You have the era of the judges, the era of the kings. The exile, the return from the exile, which that's where Ezra is taking place. And then you have that kind of Maccabean independence movement that happens. Then you have Israel under Rome, and then you have the diaspora. And that's after AD 70 when Jerusalem is uh, sacked and then the temple is destroyed and then the the Jews kind of scatter. So I think that's kind of how you can break it down. We're finally moving from the era of the kings and the exile into the return from the exile. And I think I said this last week as well, but I think the return of the exile is probably the most ignored of the biblical eras. So a lot of people think that when you talk about Jewish history, a lot of people think it goes from like, yeah, there was a bunch of kings and then they were conquered by Assyria and Babylon. And then Jesus was born. Like you kind of just <laughs> skip over like everything that happens in between. So, and I get it because, you know, there's a lot less of it in scripture. We get a lot more about the kings and stuff like that. But Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, as well as um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, we get we do get a good chunk of, uh, and Daniel's. Well, I guess he's not in the return from the exile. He's firmly in the exile. Yep. Uh, yep. So remember that Assyria conquers the Northern kingdom of Israel. And a few genera- generations later, Babylon would conquer Judah. And then we have that 70, 70 year stretch of the exile. And now they're coming back. Finally, the Medes and the Persians would conquer Babylon. And the kings of the per- the kings of Persia are much kinder to the Jews than the Babylonian kings, and especially the Assyrian kings. The Assyrian kings do the Jews absolutely no favors. Uh, eventually, the kings of Persia would allow uh, the Israelites who wished to return to Jerusalem. Uh, they would be allowed to do that. We read that in Chronicles last last week, where it, yeah. it ends with the proclamation of Cyrus the Great that those who want to return to Jerusalem can. Uh, and then the the book of Ezra deals with the first two great returns. So one is led by Zerubbabel, and the other one is led by Ezra. Which Zerubbabel is just fun to say. It's true, and I it's one of those names. If Francisco. you say it, Francisco, just kidding. If you say it fast enough, 
then you don't let anyone know that you don't know how to pronounce it properly. Yeah. And it just sounds like you're mumbling. So yeah, it's a rule. All right. So uh, Ezra <laughs> one introduces us to Cyrus, the second, the King of Persia. Uh, he also gets Cyrus, the great moniker. So, you know, Hey, cool, man. Good for you. Uh, he seems like a pretty cool guy, all things considered. So it says in the first year of Cyrus, King of Persia, the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put into writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, just in case you forgot that he was I was going to say, this sounds very familiar. Is he the king of Persia? Uh, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given, all, given me all kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, uh, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So you you get, it's it's not exactly the same, but it's very, very close to the ending lines of Chronicles is what opens up Ezra, just to kind of let you know that that's the transition that we're making here. Uh, In chapter four, it says, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with all the silver and gold, with goods and and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of his, of the fathers houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided with the vessels of silver and gold and with goods and with beasts and with costly wares and besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels from the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out into char uh brought these out into the charge of uh, Mithardah, the treasurer who counted them out, and Shazbanar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 400 bowls of silver, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400, and all of these things did Shazbazar bring up when he when the exiles were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Aaron's laughing at my pronunciation of these <laughs> names. He doesn't approve. But you know, like I said, you just got to say them fast and then you're good to go. Zerubbabel. Yeah. I love it. I love it. What are you going to do? All right. So here's the thing. I think that, yeah, the, the Persian kings are just all around really good guys. Not for the, not all of it. Like, you know, there's Xerxes, Artaxerxes whole thing where he uh, puts away his wife and he might have killed her, but at the very least he exiles her. And then, you know, he has a competition to see who's the hottest and then he's going to make her the queen. But listen, it's the original bachelorette. Yeah. <laughs> Esther, will you accept this rose? Um, but it's this, it's this whole idea where, and maybe you said no off with your head. Yeah, so. it's true. Uh, just in comparison with the, like I said, especially the Assyrian Kings and the Babylonian Kings for the most part also are kind of bad. Um, the Egyptian Kings, or not the Egyptian kings. The uh, the Persian <laughs> the Persian kings treat the people of Israel pretty well. Yeah, um, and I think we also have this weird. I think we just have this this image of the Persian Empire as being like really oppressive and backwards, um, which by I mean by today's standards, sure. Um, but I think a lot of that comes from the way that we. Uh, talk about the Greek, the Peloponnesian Wars. So it's the Greek versus the Persians. And because, you know, we're in the West, so it's like, yeah, the Greeks are the good guys, the Persians are the bad guys. Yeah, Persians are pretty cool. <laughs> like all things considered, like the Persians were 
Again, you're judging this by the standard of the time, yeah, not yeah, judging yeah. about today. But by the standard of the time, uh, there's there's worse situations you could be in than being ruled over by the Persians. Yep. All right. So Cyrus allows the Jews to return, and also he returns many of the artifacts stolen by Babylon. I did love that that little section where he goes into the treasury and he finds the things that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar, and he's like, "Oh yeah, these belong to you too." So take those back yeah, to the absolutely. temple as well. Uh, chapter two follows in the tradition of Chronicles, and it chronicles, and it gives us a census of the people who returned. So chronicles. Chronicles. <laughs> if, if you love, uh, if you love genealogies, you're gonna love that chapter. But it is again. I just think. I mean, who doesn't love genealogies? Come yeah. on. Now. Again, I read. I reiterate. Sometimes it's argued that you know this is all it's made up or it's not real history. No, I mean you don't go through all the trouble of inventing like these fake genealogies. Like this, this very much reads like it's a historical retelling of what happened. Uh, in chapter three, we meet Joshua and Zerubbabel, and who begin rebuilding the altar and the temple. Uh, so this is kind of the first big moment of uh of the temple is, is the construction is is going they're rebuilding the altar the people of israel are returning to jerusalem to worship yahweh in in their city we get to the entering coda to the section though it says and when the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the lord the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites and the sons of asaph with symbols to praise the lord according to the directions of david the king of israel and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundations of their house of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish between the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping and the, and for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard from far away. So yeah, you get this really interesting, they're starting on the building of the temple, which should be kind of a unequivocally triumphant moment that the mm-hmm. temple's coming back, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Um, but you have half the people who are just, upset about it. So I think that the easy read on this is that they saw the old temple and how grand the temple of Solomon was, and they see how comparatively less grand this one will be. And they're weeping for that, uh, which I do think is is definitely part of it. One thing I thought was interesting was remember in Chronicles, at the very- Chronicles. In Chronicles, <laughs> um, we, get the, we get the moment where Solomon dedicates the temple, like the foundations of the temple when it's about to be built. And then fire comes and mm-hmm. consumes the altar. I had never th- thought of this. I think it was the Bible Project guys who brought this up. Um, but they're saying that they, because it says specifically, they did everything the exact same way that David had laid it out, just like Solomon had done. But now you don't have the fire coming from the Lord and consuming the burnt offering. Mm. So I wonder, I, I also wonder if that's part of it, is that they're expecting it to kind of just be this miraculous moment. Um, and it's not that. And it's it's clear from the outset that, the Israelites are back. Jerusalem is being rebuilt. The temple is going to be rebuilt, but this is not going to be the same yeah. like it was before. So it's it's kind of a you know it's a yeah it was sorrowful for those guys for sure. Yeah, and there's just kind of this. It's a very I don't know Lord of the Rings since I haven't brought that up in forever. But it's the whole wow, idea of bro. like there's greater things in the past, and as we move forward in history, we're kind of losing those things. It's very much kind of that vibe yeah. there. Uh, of course, in chapter four, we see that some people they're not about this happening. They don't want the temple to be rebuilt. So they write a letter to King Artaxerxes, who I will remind you is not uh, is not Cyrus. So at this point, the king of Persia has changed, uh, and Artaxerxes commands that the work ceases. So wow, 
Thanks. Sad day. Jerk. Uh, chapter five introduces us to some new characters, and we are told that Haggai and Zachariah, or Haggai, I don't know how you, pr- I don't know if we disagree on how to pronounce that, but I'm not, you know, steadfast on that one way or the other. Uh, they I'm be- not laughing at you for this one, so. Hey, you're good. Uh, they begin to prophesy, and after the petition, after this, they petition uh, King Darius, and he allows them to begin their building again. So, good guy, Darius. Uh, and then we get this story in chapter six. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, uh, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and their associates did with diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. And they finished the building by the decree of the God of Israel and by a decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day in the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated their, the dedication of this house with of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of the house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, two hundred four hundred lambs, and as, a, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So, hey, cool deal. Um, I also should say that uh, yeah, it's by the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. So, you know, Artaxerxes is getting a little bit of credit here. Not sure how much he deserves, but what are you going to do? It's fair. It's a fair point. I, I actually thought the same thing. I believe I remember, um, I should, this is just, I could be so wrong on this. I'm just going off of like something I vaguely remember. I, I believe there's speculation that Darius was a king of the Medes. Yes. And, okay, cool. Yes. So this also could, he also could be ruling at the same time as Artaxerxes here. So that could be why he's included. Yes, that's, that's part of the point is he's writing this. Yeah, that's. I'll just say yes. Okay, cool. Because cool. that's we got that from Daniel when we when we worked through Daniel last. Is that what year. it was? Mm-hmm. Okay. Still to this day, our most popular podcast episode was the one we did on Daniel. So right behind it's Job, which makes me happy because I love Job. But people, people are interested. Job, in the whole Job was thing. your animal. Daniel was mine. So. There you go. <sighs> Burly animals. Game on. All right. So chapter seven is where we finally meet Ezra. So we sh- we shoot <laughs> forward about fifty years later. So that yeah, that whole section is before Ezra. The book born. is called Ezra, but you gotta wait. Yeah, to it, meet him. It's true. It He's really, worth the wait. Okay, guys. I really, it should be called the book by Ezra is I think a better way of describing it. Because especially, it's also funny because the majority of the book is also not about him. The majority of the book is t- does take place during Zerubbabel's whole thing. And then Ezra kind of comes in. And as we'll see, it's it's, it's a little weird, but we'll talk about it. Uh, he is given a letter of protection from Artaxerxes and travels to Jerusalem with a large group. Chapter eight gives us a list of those who returned with Ezra. So another one of them, fancy genealogies. It's not really a genealogy. That, it's, a good, it's a good time. That was just a list. Uh, in chapter nine, we are introduced to the main conflict that Ezra deals with, which is the intermarriage of the Israelites and foreigners with those who remained in the nation. So I should say, it's the intermarriage of people who went back with the people who stayed in Israel. So they weren't all necessarily non-Israelites. So some of them were foreigners living in the nation. Some of them were just Israelites who never left. And then they're intermarrying with the uh, the people of Judah who went to Babylon. So these would be kind of the more of the aristocracy. And then they come back. So it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Ezra sees that many of the Israelites were married and offers a prayer of repentance. So, and then that actually is a really good chapter of Ezra yes. where it's just like he's prostrate before the Lord, repenting of sin. And while he is praying, we are told that a large number of, of, a, of a large assembly gathers at the temple. So this is in chapter 10. 
While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shekinah, the the son of Jehiel and the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And those... Sorry, then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites in all of Israel take an oath that they would do as they had been said. So they took the oath. So Ezra, yeah, so he goes in, everyone's intermarried, and so while he's praying, I think here's what I think is interesting about it. It does not say then the Lord told Ezra to do this. It says specifically that people interrupted him while he was praying and they said, do this. And then Ezra rises up, he's like, yes, this is what we should do. I say this because there's two different interpretations of what happens here. There's the interpretation, which I would say is probably the more broadly accepted interpretation that this is a good thing and that Ezra is is right in doing this. There's also an interpretation here that says that Ezra oversteps. Um, and it's the reason people say that, and this is why I, I looked up the Bible, by the way, Bible Project, they're great. Uh, yeah, they're a really great resource. Yeah. I looked it up again because I remember the last time we talked about Ezra, I I watched their, I think it was their video on it. And I hadn't heard that before. So I wanted to go and kind of refresh my memory on it. But the idea being that it was never explicitly commanded by God to divorce. And Malachi, who is a contemporary prophet who is working during the time of Ezra, he specifically says that it's wrong to divorce. So in Malachi chapter two, he talks about that. So the ways you can interpret this is that the Malachi passage is just referring to um, Jews who had married each other, or you can interpret that Ezra here in his zeal to do what is right before the Lord oversteps and actually kind of breaks apart marriages that should not have been broken apart. Uh, and then it ends with a record of some of the people who had intermarried getting divorced. Hmm. So that, and that's it. That's how it ends. Yeah. Like, and again, like I said, you want to think, pay attention to the ending of a book, but that one, it, it straight up just ends with like, and this is the list of people who, who uh, put away their wives. The end. the end. Yep. So Ezra, yeah, it's, it's fade to black. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And that the one of the things I love that the, uh, um, and the Bible Project guys point this out too, is that both the era of Zerubbabel and the era of Ezra end on these kind of just weird anticlimaxes of Zerubbabel. It's kind of the building of the temple, but it's not as great as it as it could have been. And then with Ezra, it's this moment of like, all right, and then Ezra commanded divorce and some of the people did it. And then we move on to Nehemiah. So there you go. Interesting. That's crazy. Well, before we move on to, uh, we're going to talk about some Psalms and then we're going to jump into Nehemiah, but we do want to remind you to, hey, you know, hey, listener, beloved listener, friend, <laughs> I've been waiting pal. For the, I've been waiting for the beloved listener. Oh, man. Hey, beloved listener, I need you to do something for me. Could you just leave us a review? That'd be swell. Yeah. Anyway, no, it, it, does, it does just help get the podcast out there to more people. Uh, and yeah, the more people we have, the more we can kind of grow this community yeah. of everyone expands, reading the Bible together. expands the reach where we get to engage in God's word together. Um, I will say this, Spotify, you've jumped to 80 five-star ratings, so thank you for that. Oh, snap. Uh, and Apple Podcasts, you're holding strong at 84. 
Um, and, and if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts and you have yet to lead a written review, we would love to, to take time to, to thank you for that publicly uh, and by reading your review as well. And besides, it makes me feel good. So we'd love for you to do that. So uh, we're going to jump into a few Psalms this week. Uh, and so as we do uh, per the norm this year in the podcast, as we take the Psalms that we're going to read week uh, by the week and then kind of give you kind of quick a quick highlight of them. And then uh, if there's time, we read a couple of them just to highlight them some more specifically that way. Uh, and so this week, we are reading one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight psalms throughout Snap. the week, um, including Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and I'm going to hit them and in- intro them, give you an overview of them in the order we're going to read them in this week, not in the actual psalm chronologi- chronological order. So um, Psalm 116 is where we start. This is a hymn of personal thanksgiving for God's care. Uh, the sp- specific circumstance is a deliverance of from an impending death. Uh, so someone's getting ready to die and they uh, don't die. And so they give thanks for God's care. We don't have a specific instance as far as what was actually the case, but that's just the, the context surrounding it. Psalm 25 is a psalm that instills confidence. The theme will instill confidence in the Lord's people. Uh, that remaining to, loyal to him is really worth it, which I would simply suggest, yes, that's accurate. Um, staying faithful to the Lord is worth it. And that's what the psalm uh, hits this week. Uh, psalm 27 and Psalm 28 kind of go hand in hand, just a heads up, not just because they're 127 and 128, but because they actually, the way that they read, uh, takes the thought the end thought from 127 and carries it on into 128. So I'm going to read both of these here in just a minute. Uh, Psalm 127, uh, I'll actually just read them now. It says this, uh, unless the Lord builds a house, many of us know this, this portion of the Psalm, at least it's builders labor over it in what? You're right, vain. Uh, good job answering it. Um, it says, uh, unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stay, stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, an offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. So Psalm 127 we see is a basic theme of wisdom uh, that without the Lord's blessing, all human work is worthless. And that's kind of the the overarching theme there in Psalm 127. It kind of has that vibe of like a Proverbs and Ecclesiastes yep. had a baby. <laughs> and, that, and that's why it's considered a wisdom psalm is mm-hmm. what it is. So. And that's going to be the same thing as Psalm 128, which I'm going to read here as well. And as I said earlier, you'll see that it takes uh, the last thought in Psalm 127 and carries it on into the overarching theme of Psalm 128, uh, where Psalm 127 ends with this line one more time. It says, happy is the man who who has filled this quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. Uh, Talks about the blessed man who has lots of kids. And so we see in Psalm 128, these words, how happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy and it will go well for you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like young olive trees around your table. In this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. And it says this, may the Lord bless you from Zion so that you will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And you will see your children's 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 children. Peace be with Israel. Uh, so you see the 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 two wisdom psalms here. 
go hand in hand. They they have a great uh, symmetry in that regard. Um, continues the topic there, describes a man's blessedness in the context of ancient Israel. Uh, psalm 134 is the next psalm we're going to read. Uh, and this is the, uh, there's a, there's a category of psalms called the songs of ascent, uh, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, but a quick short is as P as God's people would be pilgrimaging, pilgrimaging <laughs> would be journeying to Jerusalem to worship God for some of the festivals throughout the year. Uh, they would in a corporate gathering, sing some of these psalms together in building anticipation for their arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, so that's the purpose of the song of ascent. This Psalm 134 is the final song uh, of ascent, uh, and it's geared toward this idea of allergical, liturgical, not liturgical, a liturgical occasion. Um, typically, where you would put it in a gathering and an assembly, either the opening or the closing. And so this Psalm would be either the opening of a uh, of like an actual gathering, uh, maybe it's the launch of the journey to Jerusalem, or maybe it's the end of the journey to Jerusalem. But that's where the song uh, of ascent finds its place. Psalm one twenty nine is a psalm of confidence for the community uh, of God as it reflects on what God's people have endured and how God has sustained them. Uh, it could also be called a community thanksgiving, uh, which celebrates God's sustaining presence, uh, or it can also be seen as a community community lament, uh, asking that God continue to sustain his people against those who would do them harm. Um, it is also a song of ascent, uh, and it helps God's people never take their privileges for granted, which I think is so key. Uh, and I love that, and I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, but sometimes psalms can't just be categorized into one theme or one genre because they have uh, pieces that could fit other th other themes or other genres as well. So the idea of like a community uh, confidence, like it's something they sing together, a Thanksgiving psalm, uh, or even a community lament, those are all the variations with which the psalm could actually be uh, connected to. Uh, two more psalms that we'll read this week, Psalm 48. Uh, is a hymn celebrating Zion as God's special city, which he defends for the sake of the world. I love that because it's it just reminds all of us that God's purpose, God's high city, Zion is what is referred to is not meant to be uh, exclusive, but inclusive. I think that's the right way to say those words. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Um, I trust you. Good. Thank you. That's the first time you ever said that to me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, it, it commemorates some great event, which we don't entirely know, but in which Gentiles power, the Gentiles powers had besieged, sorry, Gentile powers. In other words, uh, not God's people had besieged Jerusalem, uh, but came away dismayed. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, a, uh, of Sennacherib when we talked about last week, um, came trying to besiege Jerusalem and they walked away having lost. Um, it recognizes that though material forces, this Psalm does, that material forces have their place, it's crucial that God himself be, be the defense of his people. Uh, and they celebrate God's pr protection defense. Uh, and really, because they understand it's for the sake of the world. Um, and the final Psalm we're going to read this week is Psalm 81. Uh, this is a Psalm that is slightly complicated to put into a category, as I've kind of already previously mentioned. Uh, it actually kind of resembles the oracles of the Old Testament prophets. And so we see this kind of prophetic Psalm. There's not very many of these that we've read so far this year, um, but it is, and considering we're almost to the end of August, there's not very many prophetic Psalms. Yeah. Um, but it's, we got to remember a couple things when it comes to prophetic literature, predictions, not the goal of the prophets and neither is it the, the, the goal of a Psalm that has prophetic tones. Um, it's the, the, the goal of prophetic literature is to warn God's people 
to maintain covenant faithfulness. And if they don't maintain covenant faithfulness, then there's a consequence or reality that's coming. Um, and so that it, so it speaks to them in covenant blessings or punishments that will come depending on their response. Uh, so this psalm is basically a review of the history of covenant using Israel uh, with un- connecting Israel with unfaithfulness and urges them to embrace the covenant again, uh, which is why it has that prophetic bent is it's, it's a warning against unfaithfulness and urges them to embrace faithfulness uh, because then God would be able to subdue Israel's enemies. And so you'll see that tone in this Psalm this week as we wrap up the reading of Psalms for the week. There you go. Well, and speaking of wrapping up for this week. We're not there yet. No, we're going to talk about Nehemiah. But after that, we'll wrap up. After the question, we have a question too. That's true. Come on. Forgot about that. My bad. Nehemiah. All right. Nehemiah, he was a contemporary of Ezra and he leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem walls. So a lot of times it's it's described as Nehemiah is the political leader of Israel during this time and Ezra is the spiritual leader of the people. They, they kind of work together. Uh, he asked permission. Again, we see him ask permission from the king and we get some some good guy Artaxerxes vibes. So there you go. Uh, in, the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up – sorry, sorry uh, this is also in first person. So it's Nehemiah describing this. I took up the wine. And gave it to the king. Now I had I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king then said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servants have found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to, it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, boy, he's, he's, he's deferring a lot here. Uh, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may pass, that I may pass through until I come to the land of Juna, Judah. And then a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the, and of the forest of the temple and the walls of the city so that the house of the Lord that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me. So I, I remember the last time, last year we talked about Nehemiah and I believe there's speculation that Artaxerxes was um, probably not Esther's son, but was at least familiar with Esther as a person. And so there's some speculation that that's why he's like exceptionally like, oh yeah, if you want to go, go for it. Like he, he had grown up at least knowing a Jewish yeah. woman. Well, and valuing Jewish people. Right, exactly. So, and you get that idea. I also like, it's probably not true, but I like to think that when it says the queen was next to him, I like to think that that's Esther. Again, <laughs> probably not true, but that'd be cool. Yeah. All right. So after this, Nehemiah, he go, he travels to Jerusalem. All the letters work. Uh, he inspects the walls and they find he finds that, you know, obviously they're in desperate need of repair. In chapter three, he begins the work. Uh, but in chapter four, much like we learned about with Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple, uh, in chapter four, people don't want it, Nehemiah to be doing the walls. So they keep petitioning. Um, the work does stop briefly. However, it gets back going again, and they are they are clearly inspired to getting this done. The people of Israel know, and particularly the people living in Jerusalem, they're aware that we need a walled city. We need to be able to defend ourselves, and they are just going for it. Uh, in chapter five, we read about some of the social reforms that Nehemiah institutes, and particularly how he protects the poor. 
Uh, and th- I think, yeah, sometimes when we talk about Nehemiah, we literally just talk about, yeah, and he built the walls and it was cool. And people tried to stop him, but he built them. But he also did, he was, he was also like, you know, the leader of the people at this time. So he was doing some cool things. It says, and that, we're actually going to read all of chapter five because I think it's a really cool story. Now there arose a great outcry, outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there was, for there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. Sorry, again, this is all in first person. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you were exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we were able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Which, you know, come on, Nehemiah, you can come with a better line than that. Uh, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts from the the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this extracting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. So we'll, we'll finish up here in a little bit, but I do, I do think it's just crazy that, yeah, in that, in that moment, Nehemiah, I think he really gets it as far as the whole idea of when he says that we are being mocked by other nations. Because again, he knows that the people of Israel are called to be separate. They're mm-hmm. called to be different. They are Yahweh's chosen people, particularly in the old covenant when that's yep. exceptionally true. Like now there's no one nation that has God's favors, despite what people say on the internet sometimes. Aaron just knocked over a bunch of poles, but there's there's not one nation that is going to have all of that favor, even in, in, in this day there was. And I also think it's this beautiful picture of we just came out of captivity. We just came out of slavery. And now you're going to put us all back into it because people are starving. And so you, you can feel the anger that Nehemiah feels in that moment as well. So I, I love that he steps in and he says, no, we're not doing this. Um, when people are hungry, when there's a famine in the lands, that's not the time to just start burying people. So I, know, I think it's great. So continuing on in verse 13, it says, I also shook the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and and emptied. And the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And all the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work of the wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for their work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy uh, on on his people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people." Hmm. So it, and it, it's weird because because it's in first person, it can come across as a little bit of arrogant here um, <laughs> because it's just like this is everything I did. Um, but I do think number number one, why did where did I read this? Shoot, I just read this in a book and I thought it was really interesting that the the default posture of the Old Testament believer is of a plaintiff. And the default posture of the Christian New Covenant believer is of a criminal. And so the idea was that when you Hmm. read the prayers in the Old Covenant, I wish I could remember, it might be, this could be a complete fabrication. It might have been in um, How the Irish Save Civilization, uh, is the last book I was reading. But the whole idea of it, no, wait. Oh, was it Lewis? It might have been C.S. Lewis. And uh, it might have been in, there's a book I was reading on the Inklings. That's the problem with reading a bunch of books at the same time is then you lose track <laughs> of where so you true. read the thing. Anyway, so, but- That's the, why I just don't read. Right. The, the, but the point, the, the point is, um, yeah, when you read through the Psalms, what's it saying? It's saying, Lord, I have lived this way. And according to your covenant, this is what should be done. Even in Job, right? That's the whole thing we read is that he's saying like, this is how I've kept up my end of the covenant. Um, and so I think that's what we see from Nehemiah here is he has the basic standard of his day, which is Lord, remember me for this is what I have done. Yeah. And then on the other end of Christ, we see that essentially, yeah, it doesn't really matter what we do. Like, it's not like we're going to deserve that. We can never a, a, attempt to deserve anything from God. And so the Christian stance is not necessarily as a plaintiff coming forward and, um, getting what's theirs. It's more of like, we know that we are in the wrong and we're asking for mercy as opposed to what is deserved. So I just thought that was a really interesting way of looking at some of the prayers that take place in the, under the old and under the new covenant. Yeah. Uh, so in chapter six, we see Nehemiah, uh, some, en- sorry, some enemies trying to scare Nehemiah from completing the wall, but he's having none of it. Nehemiah, he's like, look, no, this is getting done. And then the wall is finished. You'll notice that as you read this week, you're going to read a little bit past that, but it's just a good break in the book. So I thought, let's just end it there. The wall gets finished. And then next week, we'll kind of wrap up the book of Nehemiah. All right. Well, before we wrap up, uh, before we wrap up today, we did have a question come in. So, hey, here we go. It says, hello again. I have another podcast question. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you've got more than one. I am currently in 2 Samuel. I listened to a character study about Leah and really enjoyed it. To be frank, I never thought much about it uh, for for Leah until you guys did a podcast on her. Really changed my perspective. So, hey, also, sincerely, thank you for that. Uh, Forgive me if I butcher the names and the words, uh, but 2 Samuel talks about David and his wife, Michael. David wants Michael back, and I read her husband followed her and wept until he was told to turn around and leave. Around this time, her brother Jonathan and father Saul are murdered. There is a scene where, where where David is rejoicing in front of the Ark of God and Michael has disdain for him. She makes a comment about him looking foolish and he responds to her. And right after this verse, it says that she never has children until she dies. So yeah, we talked about that in, uh, in Samuel. My question is, I didn't understand David's response. And it doesn't say that God closed her womb. I'm assuming that he stopped sleeping with her. Uh, This is a side note, but after hearing about Leah, I thought about Michael. Her husband must have loved her, and then she suffers the loss of her brothers and fathers and then doesn't have kids. I empathize with her. This same chapter talks about God striking a guy down because 
All right, sorry, I'll save that. I'll save that for a second here. So we're, we're also going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant slipping and someone falling to catch it. So first thing, David and Michael. Um, yeah, I th- I, well, I, I think we might be getting a different wife confused for part of it because uh, Michael was not married, I believe, unless I'm going completely crazy. So maybe fact check me on that one. But I, be- I believe she was unwed when uh, she is made David's wife. So Aaron's looking inquisitively at me. I'm trying to track with what you're saying. Sorry. Well, I... Maybe I'm reading the question wrong. It sounds like what she's saying is that Michael- David wanted Michael back and I read her, her husband followed her and wept until he was told to turn around and leave. I don't know. I have to, I'd have to read Second Samuel to, to remember some of the context there. Well, you know what? A little bit of inside baseball. Let's just hit stop. Let's look it up and then we'll come back. All right, we're back. After much deliberation- yeah, we, we both missed that completely. But yeah, you're right. Like, no, I knew all about it, Evan, and you told me this kid. No, it, it totally is one of those things that uh, it just it's such a short little passage in that in that chapter that it totally makes sense that I'd miss it because you right. there's other things happening that take your attention away from it. So but yeah, it's a pretty significant moment, I guess. So for so, so for great cl- job, by the way, catching that. That's ab- a, that's a fun revelation. Absolutely. So for clarity listeners, so Michael what, what we thought she, the listener was saying was that Michael was married before she married David. No, what happened was David marries Michael. Then when David flees because of Saul. Yep, Saul marries her off to another person. And mm-hmm. clearly there's some type of love there as well because when David comes back, he reclaims Michael and then her husband or her her new husband falls behind weeping essentially. Yeah, because he doesn't want her to go. Exactly. So that is real sad. So that's what's going on. Yeah. Man. So yeah, because it's weird because like there's that little aside and it's right there. And then you go a few more chapters before you see Michael again. So Mm -hmm. it's completely disconnected from the rest of the Michael narrative. So anyway, all all that to say, I think there is, um, there is some Leah connections there. I don't yeah. think it's I don't think it's fully. By the way, I, I will say the Leah episode that we did might be one of my favorite episodes we've ever done on the Rude. podcast. No, I'm just I, kidding. It's just really good. We did it together. No, no, I was just yeah, kidding. I, 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 I was, was kidding. Okay. No, I think it's really good. But yeah, I do think there's absolutely some sympathy for Michael. And I, and I love the fact that you're you're looking at this not as kind of 30,000 foot level, but you're really trying to put yourself into yeah. this woman's situation because I think that's such a healthy way to read the Bible and to try and understand it. Um, yeah, she... It, her husband is ripped away from her and then later she gets remarried and now she's ripped away from that husband as well. And it's, it's, it's obviously implied, not stated directly, but it seems like there's love in that relationship yeah. given his reaction. And then, yeah, her, her father is killed in battle along with Jonathan, who's just, you know, he's, her brother. Yeah. He's a great friend. I, can, I I imagine he'd also be a great brother. He seems like an all around great guy. Yeah. Um, her other brother Ishbosheth is is murdered. So all of these things are are happening, and she's completely lost her family, and she's yeah, she's angry. Yeah. Um, and so I do think I, I don't think it's I don't think it justifies her kind of rebuking David for showing his joy at the return of the Ark of the Lord. Um, and I don't think it justifies her disdain for David, but I do think it it helps flesh her out as more of a real character when you think of it through that lens of how much pain and how much grief she's gone to gone through and how a lot of that can be attributed to David mm-hmm. whether directly or in, or indirectly yeah. and so you can you can see how and it's really sad but you can see how the love that she felt and and loyalty that she felt towards David turns to disdain yeah um yeah, it, it is really sad ending. And I would agree with you there where it's not explicitly stated one way or the other, but I would interpret it when it says she has no more children. I would, yeah, I think her and David stopped uh, sleeping together, yeah. I think is what that means. So. And, I, and I would, and I told Evan, I, I think this would be where she probably just removed herself completely 
from David more than David totally rejected her. Because even in that exchange, I mean, going back to some of the question, like you don't understand David's response to her when she rebuked him, because that's in essence what happened. As David comes in with the Ark of the Covenant, he's celebrating, he was rejoicing because the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of God's presence. God's presence has returned to God's people. David ushered that back in. So he's excited about it. He's celebrating that. And so he he kind of strips off his his royal robes. He He's dancing undignified. They would say naked at that point. I don't think he was actually naked as we would understand it now, mm-hmm. but he had undergarments on, whatever. Uh, and so then Michael rebukes him in essence saying, oh, w- what a way for the a king of Israel to honor himself. And he, you know, even before the slave girls. And and so it's, it's, it's this like disdainful rebuke of the king of Israel. And so David's response is simply, um, you think I'm undignified. But I'm undignified because of what I've, what's just occurred. God's presence is back with His people. Um, absolutely, I'm going to be undignified. I will be. I will be even more undignified, and I will humble myself even more so for God's presence. Um, and 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 then he makes this simple statement like, "And I will be honored among the slave girls." It's not because he's flaunting around naked, right? But it's because he he is he is walking in humility in response to God's presence returning. Um, and so that's that's his point. So it's not a matter of. Um, yeah, we'll take this, but it's a matter of like, I'm going to be even more indignified for, I think Matt Redman wrote a song, like I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my King. Nothing Lord is uh, hindering this, uh, what this, this, this joy that's in my soul. Um, but it's, it's that picture of, um, you can like, he understands the rebuke, but at the same time, he's going to fire back and say, listen, I'm going to be indignified for my King. Mm -hmm. The the presence of God is back. Uh, and so that, that's some of that tension. And, and so Michael at that point probably doesn't feel well cared for is still grieving the loss of so many things in her life to where she just becomes shut down. And I, I would, I would say probably she removes herself more from David than David does. But I think David also allows the division and removal as right. well. So, yeah, which that, even, even more adds to even more of the pain. Yeah. I because, don't think either of them really worked to try and save no. yeah, the marriage so, there. But yeah, so that, I think that's an interesting piece as well to that whole conversation. Hmm. Well, uh, the second part there, and we'll, we'll talk about this really quick. So you say, uh, let me find the spot in the question here. It's about someone who dies. Yeah. I think it's Uzza is what you say. I say Uzza. Yeah. It one, doesn't matter. So anyway, yeah. So this is actually, it takes place right before mm-hmm. David and Michael have the fight over him dancing. The Ark of the Covenant is being returned. And the one of the oxen stumbles, the Ark kind of shuffles. Shakes in the cart yep. or whatever. So Uzza puts his hand on to the Ark. steady it. Yep. And then he is struck down dead in that moment. Um and then at, you say, at times I get confused as to how harsh it seems God is, though I know he is just and loving as well as fair. Can you explain why this angered, why you think this angered God so much? I must have missed something. Uh, and this is sorry for being all over the place. Yeah, you're not. No, no it was great. Questions, questions are great. All right. So here's, here's, the, here's the deal. I think one of the things that we have to talk about, two things that we have to talk about. Number one, God takes holiness incredibly seriously. And I think particularly in the old covenant, a lot of these things are put forward. In the, in the law to show how fallen we are as humans. And so there's all of these kind of regulations to say that as humans, we do not come close, not just to the holiness of God, but to the holiness that we experienced before sin. So I mm-hmm. think that's an important factor. Yeah. One of my favorite messages I ever heard on this is by R. By me? Uh, it's just by, kidding. It's by R. C. Sproul. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's my pen name. Just kidding. <laughs> there you go. R. Sproul, by the way, is, is great. He's yeah. he's since passed on, but he they there's a podcast where they just do a sermon of his a day every day. So like, if you're ever in the mood, like you, you, every day there's a new one. Um, but he did a he did a message on Uzza, and he said one of the things that we don't talk about is how it was a sin of pride, not just the pride of thinking that like, well, God 
commanded me not to touch this, but obviously, you know, I know that he wouldn't care if I touched it here. Um, it's also the pride of thinking that the dirt and the mud and the earth are somehow more dirty than his sinful hands is how it was phrased. And I thought it was a really interesting perspective. Wow, I've never heard that. Right. So, but, but because like, I was just like, well, I got to protect the ark from the earth. And I was like, well, the earth has never sinned against God. Like the dirt has never, the dirt is exactly the way God made it to be. Like it's, it's acting exactly in accordance. It's only humans who have sinned against God. And so the only unclean thing that touches the ark is us's hand. Everything else is exactly the way it's supposed to be. So I, just, I thought that was a really interesting perspective on it. It's a really good perspective yeah. on it. Classic RC. That guy's that guy's awesome. But, Thanks. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, and I, I think that's true. I think uh, one of the things that I think we fail to grasp in our grace, modern, modernized reality of grace is the command for holiness. Right. In the New Testament, the command for holiness, Peter brings it up. And I think we even mentioned it referenced last week in the podcast. I talked about this idea of holiness. Um, I don't think we have a, a, a real understanding of what God expects. Because if we did, it, I, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to sound super like heavy in this. But I think when we grasp in, in growing intensity the weight of God's expectation of holiness, it should lead us to a moment of realization even more profoundly how powerful the gospel is. Because Jesus is the one that we are now that we have our holiness in, mm-hmm. because He died and rose again, and and I've I've said it this way, and I really do. I I, I think this is the best way to say, it. like the idea Christ, Jesus on the cross held sin back, so it no longer had hold on me. And as a, as a human, there is a, a a lack of of awareness of uh, of the holiness of God. And I do think there's a layer to that, that as we continue to mature in Christ, we become more aware of it. And so um, that that's part of the picture here. That So when when Uzzah or Uzzah or whatever Yaza, whatever Yuzza. his name is, um, w- when he touches it, I, I think R.C. Sproul is brilliant with that. I mean, I've never heard that before. And so, but I think that, that the most, the only unclean thing that touched the ark in that moment was his hand uh, because he was unclean and because he's a a sinful human. And so, um, so that's why God gets mad. It's not, it's not even, I mean, this goes even to revelation, right? It's, it's God's wrath against sinfulness. It's God's wrath against uh, unrighteousness. It's not God's wrath against humanity. It's against the sin that is so prevalent among humanity. That's what revelation is. It's a picture of what happens to sinfulness. God's wrath is poured out against sinfulness. If we are righteous in Christ, if we are part of God's family, those punishments are not ours. Mm-hmm. Because we now stand justified. We now stand redeemed. And so um, so I think that is a big layer to the filter. And that's that's part of what stirs God's anger is is the the, the lack of holiness. The, it's not even necessarily Uzzah, but because he was unclean and he touched the holy, pre- the holy ark of God, right. there's punishment that comes from that. So it's a wrath that poured out against sinfulness, mm-hmm. for the lack of a better way to put it. Well, thank you so much for your question. It was a great question. And honestly, like I love like, yeah, me and Aaron Total completely disclosure. missed it. That we had great. to pause the podcast. Well, I said we paused it. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't catch that. But like, it was one of those things like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, we missed it. So it was, that was good. I, lo- I love stuff like that too. So great deal. But great job. Well, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner, but seriously, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.